What's up, Jordan? How's it going, man? Uh, we got our 58th episode of the podcast here coming your way uh, and really excited about the guest that we have uh, that we'll get to in uh, just a little bit. He is a guy who will be a Hall of Famer in the sport of football. Just so happens that that Hall of Fame is located north of the border in Canada. Details coming up in a second, but let's warm things up with our pregame topic. And uh, this one is also sort of football related. LeBron James, the football player. LeBron said during the 2011 lockout that he seriously considered invitations from both the Dallas Cowboys and Seattle Seahawks to try out, telling The Athletic in a recent article that he, quote, would have made the team. Now, he was 26 years old at the time. Uh, he was a high school receiver of pretty significant note. He claims to have been recruited by Urban Meyer when Urban was an assistant at Notre Dame. Uh, what kind of football player, if LeBron did pursue this path, would he have been 100% believe he would have made the team like you're telling me LeBron James having not played football in eight years was just going to walk out there and make a, an NFL franchise yes absolutely I believe that right why wouldn't you sign the 6'8 255 pound freak of nature to just do something right do something out there it's fascinating because he he would be sort of this prototypical edge rusher Right, this guy who could come off the edge and just wreak havoc. Can you imagine trying to block him, like stay in front of him uh, as he rushes the passer? Uh, would he be an every down defensive end slash outside linebacker? Probably not. Not not questioning basketball players' toughness, but if you're going to run into a 300 pound wall like 50 times a game, uh, it's a little bit of different physicality than than backing a dude down in the post. So I'm going to say LeBron's going to stick to offense, as incredible <laughs> as he would be as sort of a Vaughn Miller esque football player. Like, he's a, he's a receiving tight end, right? He's a guy who can just – red zone specialist. Uh, he's going to run away, run around, and run over people, jump over people. So, I think he'd be a, I think he'd be a pretty good uh, NFL player. I don't know if he's Gronk tight end status, right, where he's getting down in the trenches and blocking and doing all that kind of stuff. Um, but at the very least, he's a better version of Jimmy Graham. I got to imagine. Yeah, I mean, consider that. Antonio Gates didn't play much football in college. Jimmy Graham didn't play much football in college. These were primarily basketball players who made the transition. Imagine one of the greatest basketball players and athletes of all time making that transition. And a guy who, you know, at least in terms of his high school football resume, was pretty highly hyped and considered. Uh, I do think tight end would be the spot for him just because, you know, that would take most advantage of his flat-out speed, which is comparable at least in 40 times by all accounts to Travis Kelsey. He's about the same weight as Travis Kelsey. Uh, he's also, what, four inches taller or three inches taller than Travis Kelsey. So um, he's just, frankly, one of the greatest athletes that I've ever seen. And there's absolutely nothing that would convince me that he would – first off, not make the team, and that he wouldn't be a serious contributor. I mean, would he be a Hall of Famer at the tight end spot? Uh, I don't know if we can venture to say that. It's, it's too much of a hypothetical. But that said, if there is one position on the field that seems to take advantage of guys who are just great athletes and allow them or afford them the opportunity to make a transition from another sport to football, it's the tight end spot. And LeBron James would uh, would probably thrive. There's there's nothing to say otherwise. So, uh, yeah, I will never doubt LeBron James in any kind of athletic venture, that's for sure. And with that, we welcome you officially to the show. Episode 58, Let's Talk Sports with Kanoa Leahy and Jordan Helley. And we're very excited about our guest today, Solomon Elamimian, fresh off of his announced retirement from Canadian football. This is a guy who was under-recruited coming out of high school, Right. He is the younger brother of former University of Hawaii defensive back Abraham Elamimian. Solomon was a linebacker uh, based on his relationship with Abe. June Jones offered without even really seeing any video on Solomon. He offered him a scholarship, the only college scholarship he received. Uh, and then he went on to break the all time career tackles record at UH. Uh, he would fight and claw his way into professional football and turn into one of the greatest to ever suit up in Canadian football. And he will be a Canadian Football Hall of Famer. There is absolutely no doubt about that. And now he is beginning the next chapter in his life. So, uh, Solly, a great guy to talk to, and we appreciate him giving us uh, some of his time. We'll be playing that in a bit. Yeah, really fun guy to talk to. He's a guy who has carried that chip on his shoulder. Uh, no matter where it has taken him. And I, I think in large region, that's why he has found himself, you know, as a, the Hall of Famer in the CFL and, and a guy who is 
just this really smart dude, right, on and off the field and, and one heck of a linebacker. And, and he gets the, you know, he's made a really nice life for himself north of the border. Seems like that's going to be his life post-playing career as well. Uh, fun to catch up with him. One of, the, one of the greats, man, in UH history. That's right. That's right. He went from, uh, what, Los Angeles to Hawaii and now calls Vancouver his home. And, uh, and it seems like he's carved out a pretty nice niche for himself. So we'll get into that uh, discussion with Solly in a little bit. But let's uh, tip it up for our game time. And we tip it up on the hardwood. The UH Hoops team dropping a pair against UC Santa Barbara. This was a weird back-to-back. Night one, Hawaii posted a season low in points and field goal percentage en route to a 59-50 defeat. And then night two, they rallied from down 15 to force overtime against the Gauchos, who were the front runners in the Big West Conference before losing that one, 81-74. UH is currently in sixth place at 5-7 and seven in league play. They closed the Big West schedule at CSUN this week, at home the following week against Long Beach State, and then once again on the road at UC Davis before the conference tournament. Uh, now you look at these two games, and, and obviously they stormed back on night two. It was very reminis- uh, reminiscent, almost a carbon copy of what transpired against UC. UC Irvine a couple of weeks earlier in another come from behind overtime affair, but Hawaii won that one coming back from 13 down. Uh, and then on night one, as we mentioned, season low in points, but this was a night where UC Santa Barbara offensively was struggling as well. Their standout player, a guy Aron Ganat thinks is probably the front runner for the conference player of the year award, Ja'Cory McLaughlin. He went four of 16 in that game. So that one, even more so maybe than the overtime game, represented an opportunity for Hawaii to take advantage of one of the rare instances where the Gauchos didn't have their A game, part of the reason perhaps the defensive enthusiasm and effort of Hawaii, but that said, they missed a lot of open shots. So how much of an opportunity lost was this for Hawaii this past weekend, Jordan? It was a big one. It was a big one, right? Uh, two very winnable games, and, and yeah, it played out you know, kind of similar to that UC Irvine two games set a, a couple of weeks back. And, and of course, Irvine perennially one of the top teams in the conference. Uh, since Joe Pasternak got to Santa Barbara, the Gauchos have, have been right up there, right? And so to play two of the top three teams in the conference that tough, I think shows you, you know, not how far away the University of Hawaii is for a group that, that can play with the top echelon off in the conference. I think if you just look at it as eye test, right? It was, uh, it was an opportunity to beat a, a team that I thought was better than they were. Um, but the way that the University of Hawaii plays defense, the way that they scrap on that end of the floor, it really keeps them in games and I think is a testament to, to kind of the fortitude of this group. But the offense has, has sort of been their bugaboo, right? And, and that's just they, – they haven't been able to win some of these games where they turn it into kind of an ugly fest like we saw in night one. Uh, in night two, we saw them make another run. But you look, you look at the standings, right, and it was an opportunity to kind of climb up after dropping those two early games to Cal State Bakersfield, who's also amongst the leaders in the conference. And so you find yourself in the middle of the pack. Uh, you find yourself with some games coming up against the bottom half of the conference, right, and CSUN uh, and Long Beach State, and maybe an opportunity to kind of keep yourself in the top half of the conference once you get to conference tournament time. Like, there's a very real path to 9-9 nine and nine in the conference, which seems to be their birthright, right? Our, our buddy Brian McInnes will tell you that, that it just seems to be that Hawaii will finish 500 in the Big West every single year. And there's a very real chance they could be at 9-9 nine and nine again. Um, but it, it, I think it's, it's frustrating yet encouraging the way you watch this team play, right, and how they can hang with these top teams in the conference, hang with teams that are more athletic, I think, than they are. Uh, as we saw with this UCSB team, uh, boy, that team was full of dudes. Yeah, <laughs> like man. Like Corey McLaughlin, um, uh, Josh Pierre-Louis, that guy. <laughs> oh, my God. Some of the plays that he made over those two nights were just jaw-dropping, awe-inspiring. Um, not to toot your horn too much, but I thought the uh, New Mexico State comparison to the old whack days, or kind of the later whack days, I guess you could say, sort of the, the last iteration of Hawaii in that conference, uh, the old Aggies used to come in, right, with those super athletic teams, and they just sort of passed the eye test. It's like, mm-hmm. where do they find these guys? Right? This, they're not, this wasn't a Big West athlete-type team. This was like Power Five athletes that they were throwing out there, and yet Hawaii was right there in some of those games. And, you know, you, you get frustrated by the fact that they couldn't finish on Saturday night. You get frustrated by the fact that they hold UCSB to 59 and still lose by nine on Friday. But I, I think some of the encouraging things on that, that second night, right? Uh, Kasdan Jardine, the 25 points, 
he was real hesitant after he got a couple of shots blocked early on Friday. Uh, and he was hesitant. He looked kind of shell-shocked. And then Saturday night, he said, just the heck with it, right? It went at him, and, and he drops 25. So I think, you know, for offensively for Hawaii, a lot of it is just confidence, I think, for this group that has struggled to put the ball in the basket. But when they play with a bit more freedom, a bit more confidence, things seem to fall. So we'll, we'll see if they can kind of put those things together over the course of a 40-minute contest because it seems to come in spurts, comes in pieces. And I'm sure Ranganat's pulling out his hair trying to figure out how to how – to, tie those together to get a complete performance from his guys. Yeah, consistency seems to be the challenge offensively for this Rainbow squad. You mentioned Kazdan Jardine. He was taking one of the premier athletes in the conference off the dribble repeatedly. That's Miles Norris, who's 6'10". He's got Inspector Gadget-type arms. He jumps out of the building. And so for Kazdan Jardine, who you would not describe in the same manner, athletically speaking, uh, he was just showing a lot of savvy veteranship out there in terms of how he was able to get to the basket, spin moves, get his shot off and just played really, really well. But yeah, can they do that repeatedly? Can Mate Cholina have back-to-back quality games? Can James Jean Marie have back-to-back quality games? You know, th- those are the questions. We haven't quite seen that play out. Uh, but you're right, the, the, the athleticism and, and dare I say even overall the talent discrepancy between Santa Barbara and Hawaii, uh, it was pronounced and, and I think it was palpable. But I think that also goes to show that this is a Hawaii team that is well coached and they can execute and they certainly can play a brand of defensive basketball that can make it challenging uh, against just about anybody and that will always at least provide you with some opportunities you'll have some chance in these games even in instances where it seems as though you're a little overmatched athletically as you alluded to so yeah I think just finding that consistent offensive game and offensive rhythm on a night-to-night basis, uh, that's going to be the challenge. Now, uh, Joe Pasternak, the head coach for UCSB, mentioned that he felt like Hawaii has had, to this point, the toughest schedule of anyone in the conference, and it certainly was front-heavy, right? I think this back half, we mentioned CSUN, Long Beach State, UC Davis, home stretch of the schedule that provide some opportunities for Hawaii to maybe gather some wins. If they can get four out of six, as you mentioned, they'd be back to 500, but they would maybe take a little bit of momentum into the postseason, into the conference tournament. That's kind of what you're playing for at this point. You're just trying to calibrate yourself to, okay, let's just try to see if we can get hot before we get into that conference tournament. All right, well, the UH Warrior volleyball team is ready to serve it up. After seeing its national title hopes halted last season due to COVID, Charlie Wade's crew is about to jump back into action, Jordan. And that starts Sunday at UC Irvine. Hawaii will basically play two sanctioned match series uh, each week with the option of adding more non-conference matches versus that same opponent each week. Hawaii is the preseason second nationally behind BYU, favorite going into the Big West Conference schedule. So what are your top questions, storylines heading into this volleyball season? First of all, it has to come with the schedule, right? They've got 14 games scheduled, four matches basically against, uh, you know, a lot of these Big West Conference opponents. And, and so, you know, you look back to 2019, which was their last full season, right? 27 games, uh, 27 matches, I think, before they got into postseason play. So, you know, this is a team that has depth as one of its hallmarks over the course of this great run here, the last, what, five, six years or so. And so to kind of build that depth, you need matches, right? You need to play matches and, and non-conference matches help a lot as well. Games that, you know, maybe don't quite count towards getting into the postseason in a sense. And, and so how does that develop, right, in a season that is truncated, a season that immediately you dive into the deep end, right? You're playing one of the best teams in the country in <laughs> Irvine. Uh, it matches that count right out of the gate without any sort of warm-up, without any sort of a lead-up. And the good news is they're a veteran squad, right? Yeah. They're as veteran as anybody in the country. They're as deep as anybody in the country. But again, how does that depth develop in a season that is set up in the way that this one is? Uh, right, because you, you've got guys who are, who's going to emerge. We know the usual suspects, right? The Colton Cowles, uh, the Rado Potapunovs, you know, Gage Worsley, Patrick Gassman, like the guys who have been here for a number of years now. They're all back, right? And that's exciting. Um, and then there's some of the new names, I think. I, I'm curious to see who emerges, right? The last match we saw the University of Hawaii play, Chaz Galloway looked like this guy could be all world, right? This undersized outside hitter was filling in for Colton Cowell like a year ago and, and could jump out of the gym. Like what role does he have? 
you know, who's going to be the setter, right? We, we saw some, some time split last year. What was it? Uh, Brett Sheward, um, Jakob Tella. They've got this 6'8 freshman guy they got out of Idaho who can set Austin Buchanan. Like, does he have a role with this group? Um, and so there's always some guys who, who pop out, right, every year. And, and how does that look like this year for Charlie Wade's squad to mix in and, and complement the, the mainstays, if you will, the key cogs with this group? I think there's some of the things that I'm going to be very curious to see as we get to see this team. Maybe not at home for a little while, right? They're, they're on the road for a bit here uh, before they head back to the Stan Sheriff Center. But uh, hopefully things go off smoothly for this group uh, as they've been, they've been raring to get back out there. Yeah, we won't see them for a while in front of the home I guess not the home fans, the home cutouts, uh, possibly, uh, when they host UC San Diego in late March. But, um, yeah, you know, the veteranship is really what this is all about. And I think in a season like this where there will be a certain random disjointed nature potentially to it, yeah, I think the most veteran teams are going to be the ones that are going to have the advantage. And you're talking about, uh, because of the NCAA rulings last year, an added year of eligibility for the likes of Colton Cowell and you bring Rado Parapunov back and Pat Gassman and just all of these guys who have established themselves as all American level talents and commodities. And and you bring them back into the fold and they are hungry because they felt like last year was their year. They felt like the previous year was their year. And I think they've just been chomping at the bit to push over that threshold to win a national championship. They believe that they have the goods to do it, certainly. Uh, And so for me, it's just can, the biggest question is just can they finish the deal? This isn't going to be a season quite like any others. So there will be a randomness to it. But that said, when given the opportunity, hopefully we get to this postseason unscathed in terms of the impact of COVID. And when they get there, can they make it happen? Can they finally get over that final hurdle? All right, we move on to the gridiron and uh, Mariota on the move. Marcus Mariota's name has been swirling around trade rumors this offseason, Jordan. Of course, the former St. Louis Crusader and Oregon Duck, Heisman Trophy winner. Most recently, uh, a member of the Las Vegas Raiders as a reserve behind Derek Carr. Well, it looks like there might be an opportunity for him to reclaim a starting position somewhere per these trade rumors. The Washington football team, the New England Patriots, even your Chicago Bears have all been teams mentioned as speculation of course but mentioned as potential landing spots for Marcus where would you like to see Marcus get another shot as a starting quarterback it's gonna be one heck of a quarterback carousel this year right I mean you just think of how many different starters may be week one and at all of these different places and how does Marcus sort of fit into that right so many of those places are intriguing and and you you maybe hear some of the rumblings out of Oakland, right? That, or excuse me, Las Vegas. Still never going to get used to that. Um, <laughs> that, you know, unless it's somebody like Deshaun Watson, Derek Carr seems to be the guy there. Uh, so where does that leave Marcus, right? And, and he will attract a fair amount of suitors, as you've already sort of laid out there, right? How interesting would it be if he ends up in New England with Bill Belichick, who may be on a revenge tour right after Tom Brady goes ahead and wins a Super Bowl elsewhere. Bill's got to answer, right? And, and, You know, it's maybe not an ideal situation offensively, I think, for a quarterback coming in because they don't have a lot of talent on the perimeter, something that, you know, uh, I think a lot of Marcus fans maybe complained about when his time in Tennessee. I'd love to see him in Chicago. I, I, as a pessimistic Bears fan, I almost don't wish that upon Marcus. Like, I don't know if that is a situation set up for him to succeed because of all of the unknowns there because I am a bit cold on Matt Nagy in that offense here going forward. The, the team, I think, that makes a lot of sense for him um, is the San Francisco 49ers. And, and they've been rumored now in, Deshaun, in this Deshaun Watson sweepstakes, right? It, it may be a team that, that Watson may be interested in. But if, if they could figure out something to get him to San Francisco, and, and, you know, we're no cap gurus and things like that, and you put it in the fake trade machine and all that fun stuff. But they're a team that I think if, if they don't get a guy like Deshaun Watson, I'm not saying Marcus is Deshaun Watson, but he brings a lot of those kind of qualities, right? He has a great arm. He can make things happen with his feet. He is mobile. He's a guy that's been fairly accurate as a passer in his career. Um, and, and with that Kyle Shanahan offense, that is the place that that would be my dream location 
for Marcus would be San Francisco. But otherwise, I, I mean, I think the Bears are a decent fit. I think New England is a decent fit for him. And honestly, of the teams that you mentioned, Washington, right? That's a playoff team with yeah. no quarterback. <laughs> like, they've got weapons. They've got a defense that can support him. Uh, and so uh, of the three that you mentioned that I think are more realistic maybe than my, my pipe dream scenario of the San Francisco 49ers, uh, I think WFT, I think, I think that's the team that would make the most sense for him. They're, they're in better position than the Bears. They're in better position, I, I would say, than the, the Patriots right now with what they've got on their roster. Yeah, and I think, you know, what complicates this is, is Mariota's contract. Now, he signed a backup quarterback deal, base salary of $10.6 last year. And so that's well below market value for a starting quarterback. But it should be noted that there are a lot of incentives tied into that contract. I think the consideration was, should Marcus elevate to being the starter, they would add some of these incentives. So if he plays over 60% of snaps in 12 games next season, he would earn an additional just under $8 million dollars for each victory that he leads his team to that would be an extra like 150,000 so that could add up to almost 2 million dollars and so he comes with a potential price tag that far exceeds what his base salary reportedly is and so i think that that complicates things a little bit because it at least provides a consideration i'm not sure how many teams would hesitate if they have an opportunity to get a starting quarterback like Marcus Mariota, who I think proved in the one game where he had to fill in for Derek Carr against the Chargers, that when he is healthy, that he can still be a really high-quality quarterback and an effective quarterback in this league. And I think that that, in many ways, sort of rejuvenated uh, his status as a potential starter again. So I'm not sure how many teams would balk at some of the contract uh, incentives that are included here, but it is something teams would have to think about with regard to uh, trading for Marcus Mariota. All right, so we switched back over to the hardwood, and I found this to be kind of an interesting topic. Not really a local story per se, but certainly could have an impact across the college basketball landscape. Opting out or quitting, how do you characterize it? Duke Hoops freshman Jalen Johnson has reportedly opted out of the remainder of the college hoops season to begin preparations for the NBA draft. He's projected as a top 10 pick. He's had a bit of an up-and-down year individually for the Blue Devils. Uh, that's a team that's been up-and-down collectively. Duke is 8-8 eight and eight at the time of this recording, tied for 8th in the ACC. Uh, Johnson also had been removed from the starting lineup the last few games. So that has prompted some media folks, Seth Davis, Doug Gottlieb among them, to accuse Johnson of quitting as opposed to the adopted term opting out. Which one is it in your mind? Do you view this as Jalen Johnson quitting on his team? Or do you see it as him just taking uh, the the opportunity to opt out? This kind of reminds me of the Draymond little rant he had the other day. Draymond Green, that is, in the post-game press conference and talking about guys like Andre Drummond and, and Blake Griffin in the NBA who, you know, we and I thought he had a, a really interesting point and a fair point you know, in talking about, hey, you know, when players ask for trades, players exercise a bit of agency, try to take some of that power into their own hands. They get ripped, right, by the teams, by sources, by the media. Um, but when a team says, hey, we're going to trade a guy and sits a dude like Andre Drummond, right, they basically pulled him out of the lineup in Cleveland and said they're not going to play him at all until they find a trade partner to move him out of that franchise. You know, it's okay, right? It's It's the team doing it that way. And so, it's got to be a two-way street, right, when it comes down to these things. And, and, yeah, I'm equating the NBA a bit with college basketball, right? It is big money. These guys aren't getting compensated much beyond, what, a scholarship for, like, a, a three-semester experience. Not even a three-semester, like a semester-and-a-half experience, you know, at Duke or whatnot and what have you or at some of these institutions. I don't blame these guys. I don't blame these guys. I don't love it, right? I don't love that he's opting out at this point in the season, you know, he had opportunities prior to the season or, or maybe early. I don't love it. It doesn't make me feel great, um, you know, as a fan of the game, as a guy, you know, as a Duke fan, as, as a guy who loves to see these, you know, young up-and-comers sort of come through these storied programs. But I get it. I get it, and I don't blame them. I really don't because I understand the fact that these are business decisions, right? You are making these schools money. You are making these coaches money by putting – you know, your life on hold, having to sort of sequester at these schools during this COVID time and, and, and having to sacrifice a lot. And so if, you know, he felt like he needed to get out and go concentrate and get ready for the draft, like I, I really can't blame him. I, 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 I lean more towards opting out than quitting. Um, but again, it, it, 
it's a reality of this sort of situation that the, the sport has, has sort of created for itself, I think. I think the valid question is if Duke wasn't eight and eight and if they were instead 15 and one, would Jalen Johnson still be making the same decision? Or if he individually was having a bit of a more consistent and effective season, would he be opting out? I think that's a fair question. Uh, the circumstances do lead you to at least have some level of doubt, dare I say even criticism, of this decision. Uh, that said, I don't really think you can take this out of the category of being something similar to what we see in college football when players decide to sit out of bowl games, right? Christian McCaffrey decided not to play in the bowl game for Stanford, uh, and, and a lot of these players seem to make those decisions, especially when their highly ranked programs don't make it into the college football playoff, and they're playing in perhaps what are considered lesser bowl games, and so they make the business decision, as you allude to, to get ready and prepare for the NFL draft. I don't see there being much of a difference here. I could argue uh, basketball being a little bit different from football, but there's still being a risk of injury. But I, I could argue, you know, what better way is there to prepare for the draft than to play ACC basketball, right? I mean, that seems to me like that would be a good uh, way to go about sharpening your game and playing for one of the greatest coaches of all time. But uh, yeah, I, I think those are all valid questions. But yeah, at the end of the day, I hesitate to say that he's quitting on his team. I think a Effectively, he is, but I don't think you can remove this from the category of what you see in college football prior to the bowl season. And if you refer to that as more of an opting out and business decision, then you have to look at this as being the same kind of thing. All right, time to move on to our Domino's Hawaii main topping, and it is our conversation with Solomon Elamimian, newly retired Canadian football legend, uh, and just a good guy to talk to. We're really happy that he was able to spend some time with us. So let's go ahead and play that right now. All right, Solly, what's up, man? It's great to talk with you. We're seeing you here over Zoom. It's uh, good to see your face as well, and uh, congratulations for sure uh, on your announced retirement. Uh, the next phase of Solomon Elamimian's life is, uh, is about to begin. How's it feeling like? Uh, first and foremost, Kanoa, thanks for having me uh, today. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely strange saying that um, I'm an ex-professional football player or ex-athlete. It definitely feels strange. I will say the the couple perks of it is I've been um, getting acquainted with my snooze button, so I get to sleep in a little. <laughs> so uh, that's the uh, that's the perks of the last couple of days. But uh, no, thanks for having me. Yeah, no, that sounds like a really good perk. Yeah, you also kind of make me feel a little old because here you are in retirement and I remember covering you at the University of Hawaii when you were, you know, Abe Elamimian's little brother coming into the program. And of course, you came in and you wrecked shop and you became the school's all-time leading tackler. And it was just amazing. You you always had a, a certain chip on your shoulder. You always had a certain edge mm -hmm. when you played. N nicest guy anybody could ever talk to off the field. Uh, but when you got between the sidelines, that, that little beast inside came out, right? Definitely. You know, I was always – I always played angry because I usually was angry. <laughs> you know, um, to kind of understand me, you got to understand, you know, where I came from. I, I, you know, I grew up in inner city L.A. I went to Crenshaw High School. You know, I was um, – I'd say the black sheep of my family. And, you know, amongst my teachers and, you know, peers of people, uh, you know, in the um, – you know, growing up, a lot of people really didn't believe in me. You know, I had teachers telling me that I better, you know, have a plan B and a plan C because the likelihood of me being a professional athlete was, uh, you know, very, was, was nil, right? Wasn't that great. So I always took that as a, as a chip and I always wanted to prove uh, people wrong, prove myself right. You know, ever since, you know, I felt slighted um, being the uh, LA City's defense player of the year and only having one scholarship offer, which was to the University of Hawaii, and you know, seeing a lot of guys that I played with that I thought I was better, better than, you know, go to big time uh, universities. But you know, I think it all worked out. Like I was meant to play linebacker, and um, you know, Hawaii was, I would say, the best place for me. You know, I grew, I matured as a as a young adult. Um, I was able to find myself in the. Um, you know, inner city LA, and you know, I, I think I seen the world a little bit different, and it was much needed. You know, it's interesting, Solly, because you know that obviously was such a motivating factor for you—the the fact that there were people that that doubted you, there were people that said you weren't big enough, or or fast enough, or skilled enough. Um, and I'm wondering, do you think you would have had the same level of drive or motivation if 
you were a couple of inches taller or if you know there were uh, things that you were able to take more for granted in that process it's sort of an interesting uh, conundrum when you think about it yeah it definitely is and it's, it's things that i think about um a lot it's adversity and i really think that you know for personal growth i think for success you have to have adversity and it's it's normal and obviously when you're going through it it's not fun you don't like to be sliding you like you don't like to feel like you're getting the short end of the stick but you have to understand you know it's necessary because so much of preparation um, as athletes and so much of what we do happens outside the football field. You know, it's the mental preparation. It's the whole off season of training, waking up at six o'clock, being disciplined, you know, sticking to a regiment of a hard, strict diet. And without motivation, without adversity, without something, you know, pushing you, it's really hard to do. And that's why you see a lot of guys who have extreme amount of talent, you know, aren't able to um, reach their full potential is because, you know, the adversity might not be there. And I think you hit it right on the head. The adversity that I, that I had is something that I needed. And I think it propelled me, you know, to the kind of career that I had. Yeah, was that something, Sally, that, that you kept with you even throughout your career, right? Because, I mean, you've had all of these accomplishments, whether it was outstanding rookie, uh, most outstanding player of the entire league in 2014, the only solely defensive guy to win that award. Uh, in the history of the CFL, which is a, quite the long history. Well, was that something even as you sort of established yourself, once you found a home there, particularly in BC, where you spent the bulk of your career, uh, was that something that you still had that chip on your shoulder was was still pretty strong, even as you were, you know, became one of the guys in the league? It was, it was. And, you know, even now, like being a future Hall of Famer, I still think that I'm that kid in, you know, um, South Central LA that, you know, colleges overlooked, NFL overlooked, or, you know, teachers said that I, I should have a plan B. I can remember what I can remember everything that somebody said, you know, to me negatively. And I use that as my motivation. And, um, you know, it just wasn't my early childhood. Situations kept coming up. You know, 2009, I, you know, I got cut from Buffalo Bills. I spent the whole season at home with my mom. I didn't have a job. And I did a trial to the BC Lions in the Canadian Football League. And, they asked me to come back a second time. So I did the workout the first time. They said, uh, you know, we'll see. Come back another time. Come back six weeks later or a few weeks later, which I did. And it was at that point after the second workout, which they gave me a, uh, a contract. And to this day, I don't know any players that, um, you know, have had two workouts just to get one contract. Usually if they like you, they sign you. But it was my persistence. Um, me telling the general manager at the time, I said, you know, Wally, if you give me an opportunity, you won't regret it. And I just kept pushing. I, I would email, I would call. And, you know, he just said, OK, well, we'll give this kid a, a contract. And when I arrived at training camp, um, uh, I was I said fourth on my on the depth chart. But my ex coach reminded me I was actually fifth on the depth chart. I was last on the depth chart and I didn't think they they knew what they had or they knew how good I was. And. Um, by the end of that season, I won CFL's uh, Most Outstanding Rookie of the Year award. And, you know, different things kept happening, you know, whether, you know, me going down to the NFL in 2012 and me getting injured and coming back to Canada. In 2014, you mentioned being the only, you know, player, only person to ever win the Most Outstanding uh, Player Award as a defensive player. 2015 comes, I tear my Achilles. And I remember um, having surgery um on my Achilles and waking up that next day and I'm on the front page of the uh, sports section and it read I still have the paper I still have the article it read you know to the effects of you know most athletes that have this injury they're never the same you know and I took that as a slight and I kept that article with me forever you know in my pocket and I you know I worked you know day and night and 2016 came I, I won defense player of the year again and it's just always been something that I've used to fuel me. And I, I think I, I've been fortunate to have adversity, but also, you know, strong family. You know, my brother Abraham, he's been instrumental in my life, my career. Uh, he's a uh, defensive backs coach at the University of Hawaii. He's been really a mentor, a father figure, and a coach, you know, pretty much my whole life. And, you know, always pushed me and always told me that um, I can do better. So I've had a lot of motivation. Yeah, for sure. And, and proving people wrong at, at every turn. You know, I think back to those University of Hawaii teams you were on, Sully, and, and yeah. just the insane amount of talent uh, and guys who could just flat out ball. But I, I think, you know, in similar cases to yours where 
a lot of guys were either overlooked or were on maybe like a second chance after some other program or someplace else had given up on them. Uh, and it, it was this group that kind of came together and, and proved a lot of people, you know, I think a little silly for, for giving up on them, if you will. Uh, what do you take from your time in Manoa yeah. and playing for that program and, and, and as you kind of springboarded in the pro football? Yeah, I still talk to a lot of those guys. And um, I guess you can label us, you know, the band of misfits, you know, uh, a bunch of guys that nobody wanted. You look at Colt uh, Brandon's history and how he came to Hawaii. You look at Devon Best. You look at Ryan Grice Mullins. You know Adam Len Leonard. You know we had a really special group, and not just talent-wise, character-wise. You know it was times in practice where we pushed each other, where we held each other accountable, and that's what great teams are made of. You can have a coach, you know, implement rules and and, and strategy and regulations, but it's really up to the players to commit to those. Um, principles and really push each other and hold each other accountable. And, you know, that's one thing we had. We had a really good role, really good, good group of guys that were always underlooked, overlooked. And um, we came together and Hawaii was probably the most special time of my career because, you know, like you said, a lot of guys who, you know, didn't have much, but we had each other. And we, that's, in my opinion, why we were so successful. Um, obviously, 2007 um, you know, playing in the in a sugar bowl and going undefeated that season, it was a special group of guys that um, did special things. Yeah. The story was, I remember at the time of your recruitment, I guess, to UH was that June Jones didn't even see any tape on you. Uh, but knowing Abe and, and obviously, uh, you know, Abe sort of having the trust of June and the coaching mm -hmm. staff, uh, Abe was like, no, this, this dude can ball. And so uh, June was like, that's good enough for me. Brought you in, gave you that offer. And, and the rest, of course, is history. Yeah, and it's funny because I, I still remember uh, Coach Jones coming, you know, coming to our home, sitting in our living room. And he's, you know, he, Jones is quirky, great dude. He's like, look, so I really didn't watch film of you. I heard you're a baller. Uh, Coach Lumpkin vouches for you. And, you know, I love Abe. So, you know what? Yeah, we're offering you a scholarship. You know, it's no no mystery here, right? It was just awkward. I'm like, well, Coach, thanks. Thanks for coming and thanks for offering me a scholarship personally. But um, that's that's kind of how it went, man. It was it was my brother, along with uh, Coach Lumpkin at the time, that uh, got me to Hawaii. And, you know, every other school kind of either bailed or, you know, didn't want me. And, you know, Hawaii came at the right time. And it, it not only changed my life as, a, as an athlete, but I think more so as, as a person. Solomon trying to find himself. Um, you know, obviously, you know, I grew up in a rough neighborhood and a lot of my friends, you know, didn't really make the best decisions. And I think for me, going to Hawaii, experiencing, you know, life in one of the best places in the world really opened my eyes to, you know, there's more than, you know, what I was accustomed to. Yeah, you know, talking with both you and your brother, that, that seems to come across that you guys always seem to have this this expansive idea of what the world is about and what else might be out there and, and for, for maybe you know, what you're describing your your upbringing and some of the environment being, it seems as though you and Abe were able to to, to get beyond that in the way you viewed the world. Yeah, you know, I, I, you know, originally, you know, we, you know, we're from Nigeria. You know, um, I came here when I was two, two years, uh, two years old to the States. And, you know, our parents instilled, instilled very strong values, you know, in us. And um, I, I always viewed football, especially looking at now, football was a vehicle you know, for my growth, you know, uh, playing in inner city LA, experiencing Hawaii and really calling Hawaii home and embracing, you know, the Aloha spirit, it changed my life. And I think it was then that I realized how big the world was hmm. because there's, there's no bigger contrast, you know, than South Central Los Angeles and Hawaii, where for first time, you know, I could wear, you know, um, whatever color, um, whether it's red or blue, and not feel like, okay, I got to make sure I'm, I'm not going to a certain spot, a certain neighborhood. Okay, do I have a certain, you know, emblem on my hat? I was free, you know, just throwing some sandals and, you know, a T-shirt <laughs> or no shirt and, and just, you know, just just have a, have a good time. And I was able to um, let my guard down. But I realized at that point, you know, the world is, is big. And I think that's when, you know, me just really embracing, okay, you know what, wherever God takes me, you can have success, have the right mindset, work hard. And, um, you know, the world is bigger than, than what you think think it is. Yeah, and, and so on, on that progression, right, and you, you you go from Los Angeles, you come to the beach, right, and then, and then 
Canada is where not only, you know, you found your professional success, you know, it sounds like you're, you're making your home up there. Uh, what, what is that transition like, right? Because it, it's a little yeah. different than a little different than the temperature here <laughs> and whatnot. And, and uh, what, what, what has that experience been like, you know, basically living, you know, in, a, in another different country now in Canada? Yeah, we talked about uh, uh, before, before we, we, we aired, you know, I got to stay bundled up. It's a little cold right now. It's winter time. But also the uh, things you got to deal with is obviously the weather, but, you know, the similarities between Canada and Hawaii is the people. You know, we mentioned it in off air. The people are very welcoming. You know, they are very uh, easygoing and just great people. And my transition uh, to Canada, mostly Vancouver, is has been, you know, wonderful. Right now I'm studying for my Canadian securities course, um, which I have exam next month. And that'll open avenues where I can be a financial advisor and really get into the capital markets and the capital, um, capital world, which is something that really interests me. And, you know, kind of helped me make the decision to retire. You know, I want to kind of explore Solomon outside of football and Solomon in the, in the sense of a businessman. You know, I just love, you know, the entrepreneur, entrepreneurship uh, mindset and just wanted to see, you know, where I could take it. And obviously, I made some really good contacts here in Canada. And um, like I said, um, Canada is home for me right now. Um, I have my permanent resident, which is kind of like your citizenship. Um, uh, besides the fact you can't vote, right? So, you know, I'm pretty much entrenched here, and you know, for the next foreseeable future, I'll be, I'll be living in Canada. <laughs> no, that, that that is terrific, and, and you know, this obviously comes on the heels of we talked about some of the personal accolades. You, you won the Grey Cup, the championship there in Canada. Um, you know, what 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 was the Canadian game like for you? I think a lot of Hawaii fans, right? We've had some some Hawaii ties there in the CFL, yeah. so we're pretty familiar. But you know what? Was there anything that surprised you that, you know, that, that was a little different or, or that allowed you to have so much success in that brand of football? Yeah, the first thing that surprised me, which surprised every American, is you see five, six people being able to motion at one time. You know, how fast the game is. You'll see you know, five receivers come to the left and then three of them go back to the right. And it's like, wow, what's going on here? And it takes some time to really process because it's a really fast-paced game. You know, instead of four downs, we have three downs. Um, instead of 11-man football, we have 12-man football. So it's a little bit quirky. There's different rules to it. Um, every punt, every kickoff is live. You can't fair catch punts. Um, but all in all, it's fun. It's fast. It's explosive. And you know, like you mentioned, a lot of uh, guys with Hawaii connections have had a lot of success up here. You know, off the top of my head, um, you know, Chad Owens, uh, Jeremiah Masoli, he's doing his thing. Um, and I know I'm going to miss, a, you know, I'm going to forget a couple. Obviously, June Jones coached yeah. up here. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's a league that is very welcoming. And I just think that if you're, you know, physical and if you're able to, you know, be a little bit athletic because it is a bigger field, right? It's a bigger space and that allows for the intrigue and the fun. So it's been a, it's been a great, it's nuanced and, but it's been a great transition. You know, obviously your off field work ethic is a part of the, you know, a big part of the reason why you've had the success in your football career that you've had. Uh, but what else is it you think, like maybe on the intangible side, do you, do you just seem to have, a little bit of a, a greater amount of, of anticipatory skills or, or the, the ability to just sort of read offenses from, from yeah. your vantage point? Well, obviously you mentioned it. Um, you know, I think for me, it's the worst ethic. It's my family. I have a really strong family support system because one thing I tell people it's football sports is 90% mental. It's mm -hmm. what you read in newspaper. It's hearing somebody say things unpleasant about you. It's being coached hard. It's a lot of things that I've seen break people down. And the longer you play, trust me, the, the more they'll be able to write negative stories about you, you know, as a professional athlete, because that's just comes with the territory is criticism. But um, one thing that, you know, I've mentioned is the worth ethic, being able to diagnose plays, being able to study and really taking a, a, a coach apparatus on a football field. The more you can do, but the more you can help, I think. You know, a lot of people say the more you can do, the more valuable you are um, to the coaches and to the organization. But also, are you being able? Are you able to help young guys? Are you be able to help guys transition um, from the American game to the Canadian game? And I think that's one thing that I excel at. 
was kind of being a general on the football field, getting guys lined up, being able to um, get guys playing, um, you know, in one one unit. I think that helped me a lot, along with my you know intelligence and studying uh, studying the game. So what would you say to a player that came out of a college program, I mean, say the University of Hawaii, you know, and maybe found themselves in, in a similar position as you, sort of, you know, a little uncertain as to whether or not the NFL was a viability, you know, maybe trying to still weigh some options. What would you say to them about the CFL? Yeah, I would just say, number one, if you want to be a professional athlete, um, you, you have to be disciplined most guys are you have to be able to weather the storm but I would just say don't quit because you'll hear a lot of you'll hear more no's than you'll hear yes and all you need is one opportunity but the crazy part is you never know when that one opportunity is going to come you know when I got my contract with the BC Lions that was my last opportunity I knew it and the way I approach things is every opportunity is my last opportunity so just be ready for it um there's many great leagues there's many guys that came up to the CFL done amazing things and went played in the NFL. We have a, a lot of a lot of players every year that come from the CFL, play in the CFL, establish careers, and then they choose maybe to go to NFL or some state. And um, there's many leagues out there, but I would just say, you know, keep an open mind. The CFL is a fun league. It's a great league. Um, and, and don't quit. And just one more last story before we get going, um, because I guess now that I'm retired, I think back to how crazy I was, how I never took no for an answer. Um, I remember, I think it was 2008, 2009. Um, I didn't get drafted. Um, I wasn't signed on the team. And I just knew I was going to play professional football. And um, I, I booked a flight and I went to the Indianapolis Colts. I booked a flight and went to Indianapolis Colts. And I think the coach at the time was um, Jim, Jim Caldwell. I think it was the, he was the coach at the time. I gave him my highlight tape. I was like, hey, Miss Caldwell, you know who I am, <laughs> but I'm a great linebacker. Here's my highlight tape. You guys need to sign me. <laughs> And obviously I never heard from them, but my mindset was, you know what, if somebody see my highlight tape, you know, I'm good enough to play in any league. And that's just the kind of mentality mindset you have to have ready to, um, you know, break down doors, break down barriers and not take no for an answer. I just think that, you know, being retired, half the stuff I did was just was crazy. But, you know, that's that's what helped me um, along my career. Yeah, that's that's the kind of tenacity you need. Right. And, and especially. Uh... You know, off the field, uh, one thing we didn't mention, you're president of the, the CFL Players Association. So I got to imagine, yeah. you know, your peers got to love that kind of tenacity when it comes representing them, right? Yeah, it's all about advocating and working hard for our, our members. And as a CFLPA president, you know, that's my role. That's my job is to look out for the, you know, for the members. And they'll know I, I fight for them. And, um, you know, it's one that, you know, I've had a lot of fun doing. I've learned a lot doing it. And, you know, ultimately, I just, you know, it makes me feel good when guys reach out to me and say, hey, Sally, you know, I see what you're doing. I appreciate it. Thanks for fighting for us. Because a lot of times you don't you, you don't get that. Everybody you know, can see the negative. Sometimes just hearing positive words and re reaffirmations kind of, you know, keeps you going. So it's definitely been a blessing and I've learned a lot and I'm thankful for to be in this role. How long is the term for that? That's an elected position, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's elected position. I was voted on it by my peers um, in 20, uh, 20, last year, we're in 21. So uh, 2020, I was voted for it and it's a two year term. So I'll be up for reelection um, next year uh, in February, uh, 22 of February. So it's a two year term, which at that point I can run for reelection or I can withdraw my name for reelection. So just taking one day at a time. Our goal is I've you know, stated to the players is to get back on the football field and 21 and, you know, have a safe, um, successful uh, CFL season. No, that's terrific stuff. I, I just got one more for you, Sully. Uh, we, we mentioned your brother, obviously, on the coaching staff, you know, at the alma mater. Uh, how much do you, do you pay attention to, to the to the Rainbow Warriors now as, as they grow throughout these seasons? Oh, yeah, all the time. You know, Abe is one of my closest friends. Like I said, he's, he's a mentor, you know, in, in many likes. He's a father figure. He's someone that is – you know, coached me throughout my career and we've always kept in touch and I always follow uh, the, the Warriors throughout the, you know, throughout, you know, throughout my career after my playing days. And it's just a special place. And Abe's done a fantastic job of coaching the defensive backs and, you know, um, you know, adding value in my, in, I, in my opinion to that uh, pro, uh, program organization. 
you know, I love when Abe gets messages from players that reach out to him and say, hey, Abe, thanks for helping me get better. And, you know, really giving the tool, uh, the kids the tools to be successful. Because as a coach, you know, that's your job. You have to be able to find a way to motivate your players um, and, you know, maybe meet them where they're at. You know, everybody comes from different backgrounds. Everybody has, you know, different things. How can you, can you, are you able to connect to the player, uh, build that trust? Obviously, you got to meet where they're at and get the most out of them. You know, if they're a C player, can you get them to a B player? If they're a B type player, get them an A, a player. Your job is to get them better. And Abe has definitely done that in my career, and I know he's done that with a lot of players' careers. So it's, I'm proud of him, and I'm proud of the the job he's done. And, you know, we're always rooting for the for, for the Rainbow Warriors. Well, I know he's proud of you, too. And, um, you know, I think both you guys, uh, it's a privilege to, to know you guys. You guys are just good peeps and, and really, really appreciate you making some time to talk with us. Congratulations <laughs> on the retirement. I can't believe I'm saying that, uh, but uh, well-deserved. And, and obviously, there are going to be some, some accolades yet to come uh, because of your illustrious career. So uh, enjoy that and, uh, and best of luck with everything, man. Uh, Kanoa, Jordan, thanks for having me. And, you know, just want to say thank you guys. And for all you guys do, um, making sure that the bridge the gap and keeping, you know, uh, football and sports relevant, um, especially in Hawaii, is very important. So thank you guys for all your work and thanks for having me. All right. Thanks to Solly. That was really, really great, man. Wish him the best. Uh, he's just one of those guys. There's just no doubt he's going to succeed in whatever he gets into, whatever he puts his mind to. Time now for our post game. Best and Worst brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii Maui's premier full service refuse company offering various sizes of dumpsters and roll off containers for commercial construction and residential use. Family owned and operated with over 40 years of service to the Maui community, Waste Pro Hawaii is committed to customer service and responsible waste management. You can visit wasteprohawaii.com for services information. Time now for your best, Jordan. Yeah, my best here, uh, Maui guy, uh, Vili Tolutau, uh, Baldwin graduate, uh, moving to a new franchise in Major League Rugby. He's really carved out a nice uh, career for himself as a professional rugby player. Uh, had spent his first three seasons in Seattle with the Seawolves, won two championships, including the inaugural uh, for Major League Rugby, was the most outstanding player of the inaugural championship match. Uh, rugby's growing. He's a guy who has uh, taken part uh, in some national team camps, is, is sort of gunning for the 2023 World Cup. Uh, and he's moving on to the New England Free Jacks of Major League Rugby. So he's going from like one coast all the way to the other coast. Uh, he's a guy who went to college in central Washington. So a bit of a change up for him. So uh, just wanted to say shout out to uh, Vili, who's doing really, really well and um, doing well for himself. Uh, one of two Maui guys in Major League Rugby, uh, Kino Malafu plays for uh, the DC franchise. Old Glory DC, I believe, is the name of that franchise. So uh, cool stuff, man. He, he's on the move and uh, kind of spreading his wings a little bit. He's been a guy since high school who's really stayed up in that Washington area college and professionally. So new exciting uh, chapter for him as he uh, expands his career. Yeah, I think uh, it's kind of cool to see some of these would-be football players actually making decisions to play rugby, not out of any desperation, not because football wouldn't have them, but just because they feel like that's the sport for them or they prefer playing rugby. And, and you're seeing, I think, the ascension of rugby in terms of the national consciousness. And on the horizon, we're going to see rugby become a much bigger sport. All right, my best is uh, Adam Sandler posting a video on the 25th anniversary of Happy Gil more it's a video of him hitting a driver off the tee on a golf course uh in the walk-up fashion of happy right happy had that sort of running start and then it was amazing in the movie that he would still get the face of the driver like smack dab on the ball and he did so again in this video and he even said he's like i'm not gonna lie to you guys you couldn't see where the ball went it sounded clean and he said i'm not gonna lie to you guys that was bombed and so what was even more fun about that was christopher mcdonald the actor who played shooter mcgavin happy's nemesis in the movie he clapped back with a video of him sinking a putt into a glass in his living room saying drive for show happy putt for dough uh, it was just a really cool callback, uh, good back and forth between two dudes that are kind of going to forever be connected through uh, what is arguably the best Adam Sandler film and possibly the best, dare I say, golf film of all time, all due respect to Tin Cup. I'm a big Happy Gilmore fan. This this made my, my week when I saw the back and forth and 25 years 25 years boy do i <laughs> just feel to make old. you feel old yeah boy do i feel old what we, we were just celebrating like uh caddyshack uh last year right it was uh, the, the, the 40th or something like that 
And here we are with, with Happy Gilmore, quarter of a century. The, the, Shooter, the Shooter McGavin Twitter account is also great. Uh, and, and the Shooter McGavin Twitter account clapping back and kind of poking fun at everybody who was congratulating Adam Sandler and, and Happy Gilmore and sort of tongue-in-cheek, just sort of ripping happy. The character was great on Twitter all day yesterday. I, I, it, was, it brought a smile to my face. There's a lot of negativity on social media, really at any time. Uh, but especially now and, and seeing just how fun that was for everybody and just all the fun memories and even like the pro golfers, right? The guys on tour who love the movie and know all the lines and can, can do the shot. Like it, it's so great. And, and yeah, this is, this is one of the best bests I think we've had on the show. And if you haven't seen, just go check out Twitter, and Adam Sandler's account or Shooter McGavin or McDonald. It's, yeah, just, it's, it'll bring a smile to your face. Uh, those were those are some classic uh, Adam Sandler days when it came to motion picture comedy. All right, let's move over to worsts. What are your uh, what's your worst this week? Yeah, my worst. Uh, I'll go from from very happy and very light to to very sad. Uh, uh, Vincent Jackson, who was uh, one of the best receivers of his era, right? The Chargers and then the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, right? Uh, passing away just this past week, um, as Adam Schefter was reporting and. And I brought it up, too, just because, uh, you know, some of the, the preliminary reports coming out, right, some of the family and some of the authorities, you know, sharing, you know, he may, he may have battled alcoholism, uh, a, a series of repeated concussions, his family success uh, suspects, you know, possible CTE in this and, and sort of, I think, illuminates and highlights a, an issue that, that we've talked about more, uh, I think, just sort of in the collective sports zeitgeist, but we haven't talked about it enough still, right? And the fact that, that, that these professional football players, especially, and a lot of professional athletes who, who have put their bodies on the line and put their brains on the line of, um, have suffered some pretty dire consequences. And, and these guys could, you know, use a little more help, I think, it, it just culturally and, and even more systemically from the league and everything else. And, you know, just a, another tragedy here. But, uh, you know, all the best to his family and, you know, for a franchise in the Bucks that was coming off that big high, you know, quite of a blow to, to have one of their former greats. Uh, Vincent Jackson, you know, suffer, suffer that fate. It's easy for us to fall into the trap of thinking, hey, this guy is a multi-time pro bowler. You know, he's, he's wealthy because of his uh, success as a professional athlete. Uh, he must know happiness on a level that normal people like you and I could never understand. And it just goes to show that, that happiness and, and being content and being mentally healthy, uh, it's all relative. Right. And, and obviously the punishment perhaps taken on the football field contributes to it. But the guy was 38 years old. He was a massive success in his field. Uh, and it just goes to show that mental health issues are real and they are in no way tied to financial success or status. They can impact anybody at any time. Uh, at any age. And so that's something that uh, we need to uh, consider and, and, and look upon Vincent Jackson as a cautionary tale. And hopefully we can learn more and more about these kinds of situations so that we can uh, better defend against them. But uh, yeah, best to uh, obviously his family and, and, and his memory. Uh, my worst, we're going to lighten it up just a tad. Lorraine Gross, the daughter of the man who designed and helped forge the Lombardi Trophy, took great exception with drunk Tom Brady, who was my favorite and my best from last week, and his trophy tossed between boats last week during the Buccaneers Super Bowl boat parade. She said, it just really upset me that this trophy was disgraced and disrespected by being thrown as if it was a real football. I didn't sleep the past two nights, she said, because of this. I was that upset because I know the passion that goes into this trophy. I personally would like an apology, not just to me and my family and the other silversmiths, but to the fans. Buccaneers GM Jason Lick responded by saying Gross should, quote, lighten up. I happen to agree with him. I mean, we're not talking about the Holy Grail here. It's a trophy, and if there's anybody that's going to feel like they can toss a Lombardi trophy around it's Tom Brady who's got six others right like he's got six other Lombardi trophies so it was a little bit of a party maneuver that could have gone too far right there's like an alternate universe where that trophy is at the bottom of the river and they have to like go diving for it uh so yeah you know I, I it was a risky move but I don't think anybody can objectively say that it wasn't just funny I think that uh, Lorraine Gross can probably just chill a little bit on the uh, holier than thou nature of the Lombardi trophy yeah, I, I I totally agree with you. It's like it's also not a perpetual trophy. Like they make a new one every year. Like you go to those teams, you know, facilities, and they have the trophies like <laughs> in the trophy case, right? It's it's not like the only one. It's not the first one from fifty 
five years ago that's still going. Like, it's not the Stanley Cup. And you know what the Stanley Cup does? It travels with every winner, <laughs> and they go to their hometowns, and they throw a huge party, and they drink beer out of that thing. I don't hear the, the family of the guy who designed Lord Stanley's Cup, you know, over here crying because they were desecrating it or whatnot. Also, also, they pulled it off. It's not like the thing sunk, like you said, right? They, hey, hey, if they could pull it off, more power to them. Like, come on, come on. That's right. Just make another one if it did sink to the bottom. It's not, you know, I get it. Like, you know, it's, I don't think it was meant to be disrespectful to the guy who designed it. Like, I don't think that was part of the thought process. Like, yeah, you know what? Screw that guy. Let me toss this across the waterway. Like, they were having fun. They were having fun. If Lorraine Gross ever looked up the ungodly things that have been done to and around the Stanley Cup trophy, I don't think she'd ever sleep. It would just be insomnia for the rest of time. Uh, that, that it's, be, more it's like, just, be more like hockey people. That's right. That's be right. Fun. I'm going to, for the first time, agree with Rob Manfred and say it's just a piece of metal. <laughs> it really is just a piece of metal. All right, that's our best and worst brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii. Maui owned, Maui operated for Maui's people. Thanks once again to Sali Elamimian for joining us. You can hit us up on Twitter at Kanoa Leahy, at Jordan Helly, or at Talk Sports 808. See you again next week, Jordan. See you, man.